Christ has risen. It's good to be back with you, Sanctuary. Last week I went with my wife and our kids up to Indiana to see uh, my family who's still there. Uh, I did tune in last week to the live stream. I wanted to see how uh, Bishop Chris was faring. It was about 20 after 11, which uh, 25 minutes from right now when I tuned in and it was just in time to hear Bishop Chris give his first, I'm almost done. <laughs> Followed by uh, just two more minutes. And then his final, okay, I'm almost done. But he's bishop now, so he gets to do those kinds of things. Today's story from the Gospel of Matthew, it's, it's always unsettling to me, and it should be unsettling to you as well. It's unsettling because it messes with the image that I have of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like, which is to say that it messes with my ideas of who God is and what God is like. But I think for many of us, we have a too settled image of God, a too tidy, a too put together image of who God is. And from time to time, we need stories like this one that we find in the gospel today. We need stories like this to work on us, to unravel a bit what we think about God and how we think about God. Jesus, and therefore God, is always more and other than what we often like to admit. C.S. Lewis famously said, I loved the Jesus of the gospels until I read the gospels. Because Jesus, as the gospels tell it, is again, he is more and other than we expect, more and other than we can get our head around. Let's look at the text again, and this time let's, let's slow down to the speed of the text. Let's see what's happening. It says that Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now these are border towns. These are places on the outskirts of Israel. And it says that a Canaanite woman from that region comes out and starts shouting at Jesus. Again, let this image work on you a bit. Jesus is passing through the very edges of his country. There's a crowd that's gathered. He's teaching, his disciples are there with him. And this woman comes out and starts shouting, have mercy on me, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. And what does Jesus do? Do you remember the very first thing that he does when this woman comes and starts yelling at him? He ignores her. <laughs> Jesus does not answer her, the text says, at all. He doesn't acknowledge her, doesn't give her a response, doesn't even let her know that he sees her in that moment. Again, if we slow down to the speed of the text, I always imagined this story as the woman coming after Jesus, shouting, persisting, and then the disciples are finally like, hey, send this woman away. But that's not what the text says. The text says his disciples came and urged him saying, <clears throat> excuse me, send her away for she keeps shouting after us. Jesus has so effectively ignored this woman 
that she's turned her attention away from Jesus and she's started to focus her cries and her shouting at who? The disciples. And she hounds them to the point that the disciples now come to Jesus and say, send this woman away from us. Have you ever noticed how often in the gospels the disciples are trying to send people away? They wanna send the children away. They wanna send away the crowds that have come and gathered and now they're hungry. They wanna send this woman away. So they say to her, get out of here. Jesus, get this woman away from us. And Jesus says to them, to his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm not going to send her away. I'm not going to acknowledge her. I'm not going to speak to her. She's not my business, is what Jesus says. She's not who I came for. I came to speak to the house of Israel. So in the next moment, this woman fights her way through the crowds. She presses past the disciples and she falls at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, help me. And for a moment, feel feel the tension of that. See the tears on her face. Hear the desperation in her voice, Lord, help me. Even that tinge of anger at being ignored. And then Jesus finally speaks to her. And it's almost like he's not speaking to her at all because what does he say? It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. This woman, she's finally fought her way to Jesus and he dismisses her with a slur. Jesus in this moment sounds more like a racist than a savior. Dog, of course, is a slur for the Gentiles. And she comes back with this quip, yes, Lord, yet even the puppies eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus sees her. He answers her and he says, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And the text says that her daughter was healed instantly. Part of the challenge of coming to the scriptures is that we, we can't come to the scripture at all without already having some sense of who God is. We don't approach these texts as the word of God without some sense that God is involved, that God is revealed to us in these scriptures. Jesus tells some of his accusers that they can't read Moses rightly, their own text. They can't read the prophets rightly because they don't have his word dwelling in their hearts. So there's some sense in which we can't even open scripture. We can't come to it as God's word for us until we have some idea of who God is and what God is like. But then here's the odd truth is that even as we come with some idea of who God is and what God is like, whenever we come to scripture with any sense of openness, when we come with any kind of curiosity, with eyes to see and ears to hear, the scriptures inevitably change what it is we believe about the God who brought us to those scriptures to begin with. 
So we only come to scripture if we have faith in God's character, in God's faithfulness, in God's love, God's kindness. But when we come to scripture, inevitably and immediately, the way we begin to imagine God's character starts to be altered. That's what happens in this text today. Because there is always a difference between the way I picture God and the way God actually is. So I know, and I trust you know, or believe, God is faithful. And when I say God is faithful, when you say God is faithful, we are saying something true about God, but we don't know exactly how it's true. Yes, God is faithful, but God's faithfulness is more and it is other than what I've known God's faithfulness to mean. And in any given moment, I might misjudge God's faithfulness because I'm working with my understanding of faithfulness, even though I know God is faithful. Are you tracking? No, no one said yes. <laughs> Let's see how many of you are really faithful saints. God is good and all the time. What we are saying is true. God is good. God is good. So long as we understand that God's goodness is not always trackable, we can't always make sense of God's goodness, but we can confess and we can believe and hold fast to this truth, God is good. We can't always locate that goodness as often as we like to think. Because so much of what is God's goodness, it passes us by without us even seeing it, without us recognizing it. And sometimes we call good those things that are not in fact good because God is more and other than I've known God to be. This is how scripture talks about God. It says that God exists in an unapproachable light. That his ways are not our ways. That his thoughts are not our thoughts. Paul tells the Corinthians, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's never even entered into the heart of a human being what God is preparing for them. He tells the Ephesians that he wants them to know the love that passes knowing, that surpasses understanding. He wants them to know that love that exceeds their knowing, even though it does infinitely more than they can ask or imagine. So we have to accept the truth that whatever we say about God, whatever we think about God, it might be true. It might be true but it's never the whole truth. It's never the complete truth about the God who loves us and holds us in being. So we have to hold our pictures of God lightly. We have to say, this is what I see about God, but it's what I see about God. And I might not be seeing everything that needs to be seen. That's true about God and that's true about the scriptures. A while back, I was watching a church service on a live stream and I'm sure you've had this experience if you've ever tuned into any kind of live event where the musicians start to play, but the mix is wrong. Have you had this experience? 
There's an acoustic guitar, there's an electric guitar, there's a bass, there's a cello, drums, violin, keys. There are all these instruments. But the sound tech forgot to unmute all of them except for one. And you know it's the worst one because it's the bass. So many of us... I don't know why that was so scandalous. It's because you've had this experience before. And so many of us come to the scriptures like this. There is a whole chorus of instruments, of sounds that are playing and that are part of a whole. But all we're hearing are the bass notes. Every once in a while, hitting a certain note. Does it belong to the sound? Absolutely. Is it true? Absolutely. But it's not the whole truth. And when we come to scripture, if we have all the faders down and we're only hearing one note over and over again, that's not the beauty of God. That's not the beauty of the scriptures. And if people reject that note, they're not rejecting the gospel, they're rejecting our representation of the gospel. I wonder how many people have turned away from Jesus, not because of Jesus, but because of the ways we have underrepresented Jesus by insisting that our one bass note band is the full band. I think Sanctuary has embodied this well. We've been a community who encounters God and has experiences with God, but we hold them lightly knowing that whatever that encounter and whatever that experience, it's just my encounter and my experience because God is more and God is other than who and what we picture God to be. One of my favorite things to do is to teach our confirmation class that you heard Deacon Alley announce just a little bit ago. And in that class, we spend a number of weeks discussing the creed, particularly the Apostles' Creed. And we say it oftentimes here at Sanctuary, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And one of those discussions, in one of those discussions, it's simply dedicated to this question, what does it even mean to believe? And, and what does it mean to believe in God? Because for most of us, we think of belief as a kind of scientific knowing or an empirical kind of knowing. This is two plus two equals four because I can take two of something and add two more of something and now I have four of something. I can see it, I can count it, I can measure it and make sense of it. But that's not faith. That's not belief. Our knowledge and our understanding of God, it isn't rooted in that kind of knowing. It's rooted in revelation. It's rooted in God revealing God's self over time, in space, throughout history. So once we cross that threshold, now we have to say, not just what does it mean to believe, but what does it mean to believe in God? For most of us, when we say God, we mean whatever power that exists that makes happen whatever it is I can't explain. That's what we mean by God. So you'll hear stuff like this. I can't explain it, it must have been God. Which is to say, if I can explain it, God isn't at work. 
If I can't explain it, God is doing something. If I can make sense of it, God doesn't have to be working. But this just makes God one more object in, a, in our world among other objects. Rowan Williams said, and I've said it often here, that God is not a sock hiding under your bed. God is the room itself. It makes God one agent, one force in our world acting against other agents and other forces. But God is just as much at work in what you think you understand as he is in what you don't understand. You may have an explanation of why something happened the way that it did, why the world is the way that it is. You may have an explanation, but that doesn't mean God wasn't involved in it. I heard it said once that many people in our culture confuse description for explanation. That just because someone can describe what's happened in certain terms, they think they've explained what's happened. But when God is involved, there is no explanation that gets to the bottom of it. When God is involved, what's at the bottom of it is a God who is infinite, a God who is infinitely loving and infinitely holy and infinitely merciful and infinitely other than us. So there is no final explanation in anything that happens in our lives. There's a kind of description we should give, bearing witness to what we see and to what happens. But at the end of that description, we have to acknowledge, but God is at work. So who knows what's really happening? This is why we have to be incredibly careful when we make claims about God's activity in the world as if we understand all that God has done or has failed to do. I was reading an account of these fires in Hawaii and a family that had lost everything made the comment, thank God he spared our lives. Over a hundred people dying in these fires, but thank God he spared our lives. What's the implication? The implication is that God did something for them that God wasn't willing to do for others that somehow God was working in who he's going to spare and who he's not going to spare. Now, all this family was doing was bearing witness to what they understood as God's goodness. But they are one family in the midst of dozens who lost sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. Every single time we bear witness or we lament or we speak about what we believe God to be doing, we always have to bear witness with this asterisk, but God is always at work. That's the stance we have to take always with everything that we say about God. This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm bearing witness to, but I can't make claims about everything that's happening because God is the one who's at work. The trouble is when we settle on a picture of God, it, it's inevitably a distorted picture of God. And when you give your allegiance to a distorted picture of God, scripture calls that what? Idolatry. When we 
swear allegiance to an image of God that is false, that's disfigured. It's idolatry. And idolatry leads to people who have and embodied a distorted image of God. We become distorted image bearers in that way. If I settle on a picture of God and I never allow God to work on me, if I never allow God to disrupt and unravel and unsettle that picture of God for my sake, then I start to misrepresent God to everyone who sees me. I become a distorted image bearer. So what we need to do, what I need to do, what you need to do is to pray like Meister Eichhardt prayed. God, save me from God. That's his prayer. God, as you really are, save me from God as I imagine you to be. God, save me from the way I picture you to be. Don't let me confuse what I have to say about you from who you really are. I'm going to continue to say, what I have to say about God. I'm gonna keep saying, here's, the, here's the, the picture that I have of God, who I know God to be, but I'm always going to say that that knowing, it's what I see. And God is abundantly more than what I can see or what I can ask or what I can imagine. The problem is that too often, we are afraid of disrupting that image of God. We're too scared of allowing God to destroy those false and incomplete images of God that we've held on to. And I won't pretend to know entirely why that's true, why we're afraid of that kind of encounter. But I suspect that part of the reason is that we are afraid that God isn't as good as we've imagined him to be. That somehow our picture of God is somehow more good and more just and more merciful than God in fact turns out to be. But if the gospel is true, we know that that can't be so. If the gospel is true at all, then God is infinitely more merciful than I imagined him to be. Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly father desire to give good things to you? Whatever we see in the end, when we come face to face with God as he really is, we are not going to see a God that is less good than we imagined. He is going to be infinitely better than we imagined. And that is precisely why we don't have to be afraid of letting the images of God be disturbed or destroyed. With all that said, let's come back to this story. I think as, as modern readers of this story, it's, t- it's tempting to try and figure out what is Jesus thinking? And it, it might even be more tempting to think that like we would be indignant with Jesus. <laughs> like, hold on there, big fella. You can't talk to her like that. I wouldn't ignore that woman if she came yelling and screaming for help, help for her child, for her daughter. But in that way, we become just like Peter, who in the very next chapter pulls Jesus aside and says to him, no, 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 no. You are not going to die. That's not what messiahs do. 
And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You have in mind things of men and not the things of the kingdom. But I think the question is less, what is Jesus thinking? And more, what does Jesus want us to see? What does Jesus want us to think and to learn from this encounter? So one of the ways that I think we come to terms with stories like this is to back up a little bit and let's see the larger picture of what is happening in this story. In this case, the whole gospel according to Matthew. And we're not going to go through the whole gospel according to Matthew. Just a couple of crucial points. Because in Matthew's gospel, there are notes running through it that in this telling make it seem as though Jesus is very much only concerned with Israel, with his people. So in the opening line of Matthew's gospel, we see the very exciting genealogy of Jesus. And shout out to Father Preston this week for helping me see this, where it begins, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And right at the beginning, the announcement makes it seem as though Jesus is very much and exclusively Israel's Messiah. His business has to do with Israel and no one else. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, I have come to fulfill the law, the law of these people in this place. When he's teaching his disciples how to pray, he tells them, don't babble like the Gentiles do. Again, sounding like that problematic uncle at Thanksgiving. Then he says, don't give what is holy to the dogs or cast your pearls before swine. And we're all like, Uncle Jesus, you can't say that. <laughs> and it sounds like Jesus is here for just these people and no one else. There was an old movie, I think, with uh, Chris Rock where he runs for president. Anybody remember this movie? And the guy that he's running against, his, his motto for his campaign is God bless America and no place else. <laughs> That's how Jesus sounds. God bless Israel and no place else. And you know that at the heart of so many of our problems is this mentality. That God is for me and against them that God is mine. Paul writes to the Romans, if God is for us, who is against us? And we've heard this as well. God is for us, so God must be against everyone and everything who's not us. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is writing to outsiders, saying to them, you have received a spirit of adoption and when we cry, Abba, Father, Paul says, it is the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, Paul says, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But there are so many times that it feels like Jesus is saying, God is ours, he belongs with us, not with them. When he commissions his disciples in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel, he says to them, I send you out as sheep among what? Wolves. Do not go to the Gentiles, Jesus says to them. Do not speak to the Samaritans. Go only to the house of Israel. And then there's this woman who makes her way to him. And what does he say? I've only come for the house of Israel. 
I don't give food to the dogs. But that's only if you're listening to the bass notes. Because if you let all the faders come back up, you start to hear the sound of the whole band. You'll notice Matthew's gospel sounds very, very different. Going back to this genealogy of Jesus, yes, this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But if you keep reading, you'll notice that there are some other characters in this genealogy. There are women that you do not include in a genealogy. An account, Matthew's gospel says, of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Who is Tamar? Tamar's a woman that dresses like a prostitute to get her father-in-law to sleep with her, to get her pregnant so that she can get, can continue this family line. She belongs to the family of God, Matthew's gospel tells us. It goes on, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who is Rahab? Rahab's a prostitute who hides the spies and then lies about them so that she can be saved from the coming judgment. She is one of Jesus' matriarchs. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, who is Ruth? another Gentile who sleeps her way into the covenant. She finds a way to convince Boaz to take her as a wife. On and on and on, down to Mary, this girl who says, no, 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 Joseph and I haven't crossed any boundaries. This is God's work. So right away, we're being signaled, God is at work in the edges of your story with people who remain in the shadows to you. You think this is a story about prophets and priests and kings, about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a story about lying prostitutes and desperate women. This band sounds a lot different from the band we've been listening to. In Matthew's gospel, the first people who worship Jesus are the Magi, stargazing astrologists, Zoroastrian priests from the far east who come to worship Jesus. What is God doing? Jesus' life begins, he is born, and Herod begins the persecution, and Jesus flees where? To Egypt. His life begins as a refugee in the country that his people had once been delivered from. Think about the irony of this. God has to save Israel from Egypt because of Israel's oppression. And then the only way for God to be saved when God comes among us is to return to that very land because his own people are oppressing him. Later, Jesus says in that very same sermon, when he talks to them, he says, he's not come to destroy the law. But then he also says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, which is a way of saying, I'm going to fulfill the law, but I'm going to destroy your reading of the law, your understanding about what God is doing and who he's using to accomplish it. 
before Jesus is sentenced to die. It's Pilate's wife who has a dream about him. And she says to her husband, do nothing against this righteous man. God reveals to Pilate's wife the righteousness of Jesus. It's Simon of Cyrene. He's a foreigner brought in from the sidelines. He's the one who carries Jesus' cross, not his disciples, not his followers, which is just another signal in Matthew's gospel that you don't know how God is at work in the people who stand at the edges of your life. You think you're living in the light, but there is light at work in what appears to be shadows to you. And one of the most astonishing examples of all of this is that moment when Jesus dies and the centurion confesses, surely this man was the son of God. The first one to confess Jesus as savior, as the one who gave his life for us, is the soldier who killed him. In all of these examples, Matthew is signaling to us Don't think you know what's going on in God's story. Your reading of the story is too flat. It's too narrow. It's too distorted to see how good God is. So with all of that, what do we see and what do we hear differently in this Canaanite woman's story? Again, thanks to Father Preston for this note. I was reminded this week that she wasn't just a foreigner, just an outsider. She was a Canaanite. Do you remember who the Canaanites are? These are the people that the Israelite people destroyed. So her family's story is the story of a people who have been oppressed by the people of Israel. When she and her family heard about the God of Israel, they didn't hear good news. They heard news of oppression, news of subjugation, Yet somehow this Canaanite woman recognizes that this man, Jesus, he represents God more truly than anything she's ever heard from her family or from the Israelite people. She fights through that crowd and says, I know you better than all these other people. I know you. I see you. And this isn't the first time that an outsider, a Gentile, shows up knowing exactly who Jesus is. Just earlier in this story, a centurion comes and tells Jesus, I have a servant who's dying. And Jesus says, fine, I'll come and I'll heal her. And the centurion says, no, no, you don't need to come to my house. Just speak the word and they'll be healed. Just speak the word. And do you remember what Jesus says? I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. And someday, Jesus says, people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west to sit down at a table with Abraham in God's kingdom. And this woman is doing that. From the beginning, Christian hearers and readers of this story identify this Canaanite woman as a representation of the church because she is a mother who is desperate to bring her children to Jesus and to Jesus' table. She's desperate to get her daughter there. God, have mercy on my daughter, she says. So here I think is 
the word for us as a church. In the spirit of Bishop Chris, I'm almost done. (laughs) To be the church is to be a people who identify with this Canaanite woman. This person that we thought was outside of the covenant, insisting that we are going to bring our children and theirs to Jesus because they're part of his story too. To be a Canaanite is to say, I'm not going to be sent away from this moment. I won't be cast away. You are Jesus, not just the God of Israel. You are the Lord of all. And I will take even the crumbs that fall from that table. To be the church is not to be the people who are drawing the lines of who is invited and who is not invited at this table. It's to be the people who insist that God is better than you can imagine. God is more good than you can imagine. God is more merciful than you can imagine, more just than you can imagine, more loving, more faithful, more forgiving. This Canaanite woman fought for what she knew was right, even though it was yet to come. Gentiles wouldn't officially be declared part of the Christian faith until much later in this story, yet she persisted. To be the church is to bring our children to Jesus in all of our desperation and say, we will beg for them. And our children, of course, are not just our children, but the children of all who are lost, all those who are abandoned, all those who are sick, the children of your political rival, the children of your enemy, the children of the people you imagine wish to do you harm, the children of the people who you disagree with. Because to be Christian, to be the church, to represent God faithfully in the world, isn't to be someone who has all the right ideas about everything. It isn't to be someone with a higher degree of certainty about who God is than the next person. To represent God faithfully is to be someone who says alongside Jesus, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. It's to be someone who holds their images of God loosely because our perspective is never the whole song. So may God give us ears to hear and the compassion and the patience to bear with those who still feel like they are kept outside the people of God. Amen.